Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Yeah, uh, yeah, it's good to be here this morning. Uh, another thing about me, I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, some people might say I was a little, little bit sheltered growing up. I would say that about myself. Um, and there are some good things about that. There's, there's also some bad things about the way that I grew up. One of the bad things about the way that I grew up and, and kind of the background that I have is that I thought everything was sinful, everything was evil, everything was bad. You know, like things that uh, other kids my age thought were, were normal. So like Harry Potter, for example. I wasn't allowed to read Harry Potter, I wasn't allowed to watch it. So when other kids at school would come show up at school and say like, hey, I read the latest Harry Potter book, I would think they had just sold their soul to Satan or something. I, I was very uncomfortable with it because I kind of just grew up thinking that lots of different things were, were sinful or evil or bad. Uh, Harry Potter was one of those things. School dances was another one of those things. I, I remember having a conversation with my mom one time where I basically was like, hey mom, I wanna go to, I was probably in seventh grade. Uh, hey mom, I wanna go to this school dance. But then she responded with something to the effect of, Grant, you're, you're in seventh grade, so if you start dancing with girls now, how much does that leave until you start having sex with them? As if there were no steps between a middle school dance and having sex with a girl. And now that I am married, I know that that is an absurd thought. If I were to go home tonight and put on some music that was popular when I was in middle school, so you get like Fireflies by Owl City playing and I'm waving some glow sticks around and I'm dancing like a little middle school boy, the odds that my wife is going to sleep with me tonight are slim to none. And so when I look back on that, I think, man, why did I have this perspective that all of these things, Harry Potter, school dances, they're all evil and sinful. It was just kind of the way that I I was raised. Um, Monster energy drinks, SpongeBob, Mountain Dew, those were all those sorts of things where it's like, hey, that's that's bad, that's evil, that's sinful because I'm not allowed to do it. And so I had this, this weird messed up perspective on all these different things. So you can imagine my shock and my surprise when as a child still living in my parents' house, I opened the refrigerator door and I looked on the bottom shelf and there lied a bottle of alcohol. I was distraught. I was so confused. I was like, what in the world? Like, I'm, I'm thinking, these are my parents and they've turned to a wayward lifestyle? What are, what are they doing? And they're, they're flaunting it. They didn't even try to hide this bottle of alcohol. And I'm thinking, man, my parents, my parents are sinners. And it's just like this, this terrible uh, experience for me. And I remember like, I don't know, it, wrestling with that a lot because you're, you're just an innocent kid one day, but then you come home and open the fridge and find out your parents are going to hell. And it's, uh, it was not a great moment for me as a kid, but I remember wrestling with that a lot, thinking, what am I supposed to do in this situation? You know, like I find out that my parents are doing something that I perceived to be sinful, and I thought, what do I do? How do I deal with the sin that I see in my parents? How do I deal with the sin that I see in someone else? 
And I think that's a question, while I gave a, a silly example for it, I think that's a question that we wrestle with today. How do we deal with the sin that we see in someone else? How do we deal with the sin and the brokenness that we see in the world around us? Because it's not hard for us to see the sin around us. It's not very difficult or challenging for us to see the sin and the brokenness in the people around us. What's hard for us is figuring out how to deal with it in a way that is, is godly and in a way that um, is pleasing to God and, and in, in line with his word. How do I deal with the sin that I see in someone else? And you might ask that question next week at Man Challenge. One of the guys that normally comes to your table, he's not there this, this next week. And so then you and, and the rest of your group, you guys start talking about that guy. And at first it's fine, it's playful. You're just talking about the place that he works. But slowly that conversation, conversation it starts to shift. And people start taking shots at his character and his integrity. And somewhere along the line, you recognize, okay, this, this has spiraled down into gossip. And you might not call it that because gossip is a, a sin for women. But let me be the first to admit, like, even in a, a situation or a setting like that, gossip's something that I'll struggle with. It's so tempting for me to want to be the person with power or, or to want to be the person who has new information to divulge. And, and so you recognize somewhere along the line, this conversation has spiraled down into gossip. And so you start to, to wrestle with, what do I do? Like these guys are taking shots at this other guy in our man challenge group, and he's not here to defend himself. And we would never say these things about him if he were here. So what do I do? How do I deal with the sin that I see in the people around me? And maybe you wrestle with that question right now. Because this last week, you invited someone over for Derby, a, a guy friend, maybe from your man challenge group, maybe from work. You invited him over, and you're sitting there watching that, that pre-Derby coverage together, and you kind of get curious, and so you kind of toss this question out there, just hoping someone answers it. And you say, what, what's the record time for the Kentucky Derby? I, I think it's Secretariat, but how fast was Secretariat? And your friend says, I don't know, let, let me check. And so he pulls out his phone and he goes to Google that question. And you glance over at his phone and as he's typing that question into the Google search bar, you see some of the things in his search history. And your heart sinks down into your stomach. And you wish you hadn't seen it, but you realize that, that your buddy's been looking at porn. And, and you know he's a brother in Christ, he's a follower of Jesus, and so you don't know what to do. You're a little bit torn. How, how do I deal with the sin that I see in someone else? And that is a question that everyone in this room has either wrestled with before, will wrestle with in the future, or should wrestle with at some point in the future. How do we deal with the sin that we see in someone else? And thankfully, as Jesus continues through the Sermon on the Mount, he answers that question for us. As he is uh, introducing his followers to this new way of life in his kingdom, he shows us this facet of life where we deal with sin in a way that is humble, in a way that is gentle, in a way that is wise. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, so you can flip there. It'll also be up on the screen, uh, and I'll give you a second to get there too. It's Matthew chapter 7, and in the first six verses, Jesus shows us that when we go to deal with the sin that we see in other people, or the sin that we see in the world, we should deal with it in a way that is humble, or that is gentle, that is humble and wise. So Matthew chapter 7, starting in verses 1 and 2, we see that we should be gentle when we're dealing with sin that we see around us. This is what Jesus says. He says, judge not that you be not judged, or don't judge so that you aren't judged. 
For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus comes right out and he says, don't judge. And that can be a little bit confusing for us because it's like, well, shouldn't we judge between right and wrong? Shouldn't we discern between good and bad that we see in ourselves and even in other people? And there is a place for that. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not prohibiting uh, discerning between right and wrong. The word that Jesus is using for judge here, it's a word that means to judge um, overly harsh, to, to use overly harsh judgment. And it's, it kind of uh, gives us this picture of someone who sets themselves up in the position of a judge, that puts themselves in a position of superiority uh, or authority over someone that they don't actually have authority over. And Jesus is saying here, don't judge someone as if you have the ability to actually see their heart. Don't pretend that you can actually see their heart and understand what their intentions and their motives are uh, and condemn them to hell or anything like that. You don't have that authority. Only God has that authority. So don't set yourself up into a position of judgment that you actually don't have the power or the knowledge or the authority to claim. You can't be overly harsh in your judgment. You have to be gentle because we're human and we're sinful too. And that's what Jesus is saying there. You can't be overly harsh. You've got to be gentle. He also says there, uh, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And that, that word measure comes from the Greek word uh, metron, which means like a measuring rod or a measuring staff. It's really just some sort of unit of measurement that measures something. But it, that Greek word metron, what, what English words do you think are derived from a Greek word metron? Anyone? Yeah, like metric is one of them. The word metric, and, and that comes from that Greek word metron. As, as I think about different metrics that we have in our world, I think about um, like at an amusement park, that, that sign that's outside the line of, of a roller coaster and says, hey, you must be this tall to ride. It's a metric of sorts. It's a standard. You have to meet this standard in order to ride on a certain ride. And Jesus, using this word metron, he's saying, hey, be careful the way that you measure people. Be careful the standards that you set. And, and what Jesus seems to be insinuating is that there are people in his crowd sitting up on this hillside as he's teaching these things that have been setting up unfair standards, overly harsh measurements, saying, hey, you must be this tall to be truly godly. He's looking at the people in his, his audience, in his crowd, saying, hey, some of you are, are saying, you must attend synagogue as often as I do in order to be truly godly. You must follow the law of the Pharisees as closely as I do to be truly godly. And, and he's saying, you guys are setting up unfair measurements, measurements and standards that God doesn't even place on his own people. So how dare we place them on other people? But the unfortunate truth is that I do the same thing today. And you might do the same thing today. We might create these sort of metrics and say, hey, you must be this tall to be a real Christian. You must have the same political leanings as I do to be a real Christian. You must go to the, the same type of church that I do to be a real Christian. You must dress the same way that I dress to be a real Christian. You must be this tall to be truly a follower of Jesus, and we create unfair standards and unfair metrics, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 you can't do that. If God's not placing that standard on someone else, you don't have the place to do that either, so you can't be overly harsh in your judgment. So when we go to deal with the sin and the brokenness that we see in our brothers and people around us, in the world around us, when we turn on the news and we see brokenness, when we go to deal with that, 
we have to do so in a way that is gentle. But in the next couple of verses, Jesus also shows us we have to do it in a way that is humble. This is what he says in verses three through five. Verses three through five, Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus is using some uh, language here. He's talking about eyes and specks and logs and different things like that. He's talking a lot about vision. He's using language that gives us this picture of distorted vision. Last week, Mason talked about how money has the power to blind us. Money can distort our vision. And that's not just true of the love of money. That's true of sin in general. Sin has the, the power to distort our vision. Sin distorts the way that we see other people. Sin distorts the way that we see ourselves. Sin distorts the way that we see God. And so Jesus is saying, hey, when you see sin in other people and you go to deal with it, make sure you recognize the sin in yourself. Before you go to uh, clear up someone else's vision, make sure your vision is clear. Make sure you remove the two by four out of your own eye before you go to help someone else remove the speck from their eye. So when we deal with the sin in other people, we've got to be humble, recognizing that there might be a log in our own eye, that our vision might be distorted just as much, if not more, as, as their vision. But Jesus says there, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say, first take the log out of your own eye, and then don't take the speck out of your brother's eye. And that's where that idea of rightful judgment and discernment comes back in. Jesus isn't commanding his followers never to judge between right and wrong. He actually expects us to see right and wrong in ourselves and in other people and be willing to help them remove that from their life when they're followers of Jesus. He expects that from us, but he wants us to do so in a way that is gentle, and he wants us to do so in a way that is humble. And so you're sitting with your, your man challenge group, and, and you recognize that the conversation has become pretty gossipy, and your heart is kind of torn, what do, I, what do I do? Maybe the first thing that you need to do in that situation is ask yourself, is there a log in my eye? Did I contribute to this conversation that turned towards gossip? Was I even the ringleader of this, this conversation? Ask yourself if there, there might be something distorting your vision so that you can see clearly to help uh, remove the speck from the eyes of the other people in that group so that you can see clearly to deal with the sin that you see in other people. Make sure your vision is not distorted either. So we've got to be gentle. We've got to be humble. But then Jesus goes on and he shows us that we should be wise. And it's this weird tension that we have to manage. It's a weird thing to hold in balance. Be gentle, be humble, and be wise when you're dealing with the sin that you see in other people or the brokenness that you see in the world. This is what Jesus says in verses three through five, or in verses six, actually, right here. Uh, he says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs or else they'll trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And this is a strange verse. Um, and I wish I could say I understand exactly what it means, but I don't. Um, I'll give you uh, my best shot, though. I'll give you my best guess. Uh, here in this verse, Jesus uses some pretty vivid imagery. He talks about dogs. He talks about pigs. And in ancient Israel, where Jesus is preaching this sermon, 
Dogs were not cute, domesticated house pets. They were like mangy, nasty, wild scavengers that roamed the streets. And so he uses the word dog to describe something, but more likely a certain type of, of person. He uses dogs to label those people, wild scavengers. And that seems harsh. But he also uses the word pigs. And in the Jewish mindset, Jesus' audience was mostly Jewish. Pigs were the most unclean of all animals. Uh, God said to the Jewish people that they weren't to eat pork. They weren't supposed to eat anything that came from a pig. And so in their minds, they started to say, well, we shouldn't even be around pigs. It's disgraceful to be near swine at all. And so Jesus uses dogs and pigs like to frowned upon animals to describe a certain type of person. And he says, don't throw what's holy before them. Don't throw your pearls before, before pigs. And scholars debate on what this verse means. A lot of them will say that uh, it's about the, the gospel. Don't continue to offer the gospel to someone who continuously rejects it. Uh, don't take this holy message, the, the good news that Jesus came into the world to save us from our sin and restore us to God. Don't take that and continually offer it to someone who just keeps pushing you away and rejecting you because they're taking something holy and, and walking all over it. And I think in light of what Jesus has said so far here in chapter 7, we can broaden that a little bit. It might mean the gospel. Jesus might be talking about the gospel there. I think he might even be talking about godly, godly wisdom or truth in general. Don't continue to offer godly wisdom or godly counsel or truth to someone who is unwilling to hear it. Offer it to them. Maybe offer it to them again. But if they continuously reject it, it seems to be that Jesus is saying there is a certain wisdom, there is a certain um, rightness in taking a step back and saying, okay, if you don't want this, I can't force it upon you. And it's this weird thing to hold in, in this balance. It's a weird tension to manage. And so you see that your buddy's watching porn and you're like, I don't know, I don't know what to do about this. How do I deal with the sin that I see in someone else? And so you approach him to have a conversation with him and, and you do a really good job. You're gentle and you're humble. You're doing everything right so far. You're following Jesus's instruction in this passage. You've been gentle. You've been humble. But when you have that conversation with the guy, he basically says, hey man, that's, that's really none of your business. Like I, I get what you're trying to do, but like I don't, I don't need that. And you say, okay, okay. And so you back off a little bit, but then you come back to that conversation a little while later, a few weeks down the road, and you said, hey man, I know you said that was none of my business, but I, I really care about you, and like from my own personal experience, I know how damaging that can be and how hard of a trap and a, a cycle that can be to escape. So I'm here for you, and if you want to talk about it, just let me know. And he, and he again kind of pushes you away and says, dude, like that's, that's really none of your business. Stay out of my life and he pushes you away again. It seems, what Jesus is saying here, that there is some wisdom in not continuously offering that truth and that counsel to someone when they're unwilling to hear it. Taking something holy and casting it before someone who's just gonna to walk all over it. And so there's this difficulty that we have there where we should be gentle, we should be humble, but we should also not be foolish, we should be wise. And so, I think one word that kind of captures all three of those things is kindness. The kind thing to do when we deal with the sin that we see in other people or in the world is to be gentle and to be humble and to be wise. Sometimes the kindest thing we can do is take a step back and say, if you don't want this, I won't force it on you, but if you, if you have any questions about it or if you want help, come to me and I'm, I'm here for you. 
but taking a step back and not throwing what's holy before someone who's going to walk all over it. So be gentle, be humble, be wise, and really we just want to strive to be kind in the way that we deal with the sin that we see in other people. But I think that leads me to another question. It makes me ask another question. Why? Like why, if, if they're the ones sinning, why should I be the one who has to jump through all these hoops and walk on all these eggshells to make sure that I'm being gentle and I'm being humble, but I'm not going too far and being foolish, you know, and I'm juggling all these things. Why should I be the one who carries that burden when they're the ones in, in the wrong? And I think Jesus shows us in the next little chunk of this passage that it's because God has been incredibly kind to us. We should be kind in the way that we deal with other people because God has been incredibly kind to us. We see that in verses 7 through 8. And uh, verses 9 through 11, Jesus shows us God's kindness in, in two main ways. He shows us that God is first accessible, but that God is also gracious. So in verses 7 and 8, we see that God is accessible. He's available to his children. And this is what Jesus says. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So Jesus is using some, uh, some language here that kind of gives us the idea of availability, uh, accessibility. If we knock on the door, God's there to answer. If we seek God, he's there to be found. If we ask of God, he's there to give. And Jesus is painting God as this available, accessible God. But for a moment, put yourself in the shoes or the, the sandals of the people sitting in Jesus's audience. You're sitting on that hillside, the breeze is blowing through your hair, you're hearing Jesus' voice, and you grew up in this, this Jewish background, and you think that this guy might be the Messiah, the chosen leader to lead uh, the Jewish people out of exile, essentially, out of uh, captivity, out of slavery, lead them uh, into freedom and give them victory. And you're excited about this, this Jesus guy. But then he starts to say some stuff that you're pretty skeptical about. He starts to talk about God as though he is available. He starts to paint this picture of God that makes him seem accessible, and I'm skeptical, and maybe if you're sitting in that, that crowd, you're skeptical too. Because your whole life, it has not felt like God is very accessible or available. For the Jewish people, they only really got to interact with the presence of God in the temple. That's the way that they would have thought about God's presence. It dwelled in the temple, and really more specifically, in one single room in the temple in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple. And that room was separated from the rest of the temple with a, by a thick curtain. And then really, there was only one guy who got to enter that room, the high priest, and he could only really do that one time every year. And so if I'm sitting in Jesus' audience, I'm thinking, yeah, Jesus, God's accessible, kind of. He's accessible and available to one guy once a year that goes to one building in one room in one city. You know, he's, he's accessible, but barely. And if I were sitting in that crowd, I, I would think, kind of feels like God's hiding from me. Like he's just hiding in Jerusalem behind a, a curtain in the temple. It doesn't feel like God is very available. And if I'm honest with, with you guys today, like 21st century Grant, sometimes I feel a lot like what I think some of the people in Jesus' crowd would have felt like. Sometimes I feel like God's hiding from me. Not that he's hiding in, in the temple. And it's not that I, I don't think he exists. It's just that sometimes when I'm pursuing him and I'm trying to pray and it feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, it feels like God's hiding from me. 
It feels like God is, is done with interaction with me and he doesn't want anything to do with me, so he's hidden himself from me. But what Jesus is saying here is, is fairly revolutionary. He, he's kind of telling us and he's, he's telling his original listeners, God's not very good at hiding. Have you guys ever played hide and seek with, uh, with little kids? They're not very good. Uh, I, my wife and I have 13 nieces and nephews, which is a blast, and I love uh, playing hide-and-seek with them. Uh, one, because they are so bad at it. It just makes it really fun. So I'll, I'll uh, be standing there. They'll come ask me to, to play hide-and-seek with them, and I'll, I'll agree. So they'll go hide, and I'll start counting. And then I finish counting 28, 29, 30. Ready or not, here I come. And then I'll, I'll start walking through the house to go find them. And really, all I have to do is like, look into a room and I'll see their little feet sticking out from underneath the bed or I'll see them like curled up underneath a blanket in the most obvious heap on the floor and and I'm thinking okay like I, I know where you're at you're right there and so I just have to step into the room and say man I I wonder where they could be and what do you think they shout like they they climb out from underneath the bed they get out from underneath the blanket what do they shout yeah I'm right here yeah you found me I'm right here and it's like man you guys are really bad at this game. You just want to be found. That's not what this game is about. But nieces and nephews, little kids are so bad at hiding. And I think Jesus is kind of saying, yeah, God's not very good at hiding either. He's saying, God so desperately wants to be with us. He so desperately wants to be found by us that when we step foot into the room, when we ask, when we seek, when we knock, as soon as we do that, God's right there to be found. He's right there to answer the door. God can't keep himself from us. And he says, I'm right here. You found me. He's not very good at hiding. And I think that is so, so encouraging for me because sometimes it feels like he is. But no matter how we think or how we feel, God is accessible to us. And that's, that's some of the good news that Jesus shares with us here. But then he also shows us that God is kind, yes, in, in the fact that he is accessible to us. He also shows his kindness in the fact that he is gracious. He's a, a good father who provides for the needs of his kids. This is what he says in verses 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil or broken or sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus here is saying, God has your best interest in mind. He's saying that to his original listeners, and he's saying that to us today. God is a good, kind, gracious Father who has our best interest in mind. And Jesus kind of creates this, uh, this picture of a, a father who uh, sort of tricks his kids into thinking that they're getting a gift, but then he surprises them with something that could hurt them. He talks about a, a kid who comes and asks for a piece of bread, but then the father gives him a stone instead. Or a kid that asks for a fish and gets a snake instead. But Jesus is saying, God's nothing like that. God's a good, kind father who doesn't want to hurt you. He's not going to give you a stone that's going to break out all your teeth when you go to bite into it like a piece of bread. And he's not going to give, give you a snake when you thought you were getting a fish and the snake could bite you, it could hurt you. God's not in the business of hurting his kids. God, God has our best interest in mind because he is a kind and gracious, loving father. And, and that's what we see here, that God is accessible to us. God is also 
gracious. And, and we see his kindness in that. And then Jesus here shifts back in verse 12 to start talking about our relationships with other people, the way we interact with other people. And uh, it's a pretty famous verse. You might have heard it before. This is what he says. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You might have heard that called the golden rule before. Whatever you wish that other people would do to you, do, do that to them. And, and so we see here that we should be kind to other people. One, because we'd want them to be kind to us. But when we read that in light of everything else Jesus has said right here, we also recognize we should be kind to other people, not just because we want them to be kind to us. We should be kind to other people because God has been kind to us. Because God has been kind to us despite even our sin. We should be incredibly kind to others because God is incredibly kind to us. And so we wonder and we wrestle with, well, how do I deal with the sin and the brokenness that I see in other people, with the sin and the brokenness that I see in the world? I don't think we have to look much further than the way that God has dealt with us, with the way that God has dealt with our sin. God sees our sin the clearest, but he still treats us the kindest. And so when we think about the way that, that God has treated us in the midst of our sin and, and we wrestle with what, what do I do? How do I handle my interactions with other people, especially when they're sinning? We can just remember that God has seen our sin the clearest, but he still treats us the kindest and we should let that dictate the way that we interact with one another. God has seen our sin with complete clarity. He has no sin distorting his vision, so he sees our sin with complete clarity clarity. He's seen our one-night stands and our two-faced lies. He's seen the words that we've spoken on a platform and the words that we've whispered behind closed doors. He's seen our unholy passions and our ungodly passivity. He's seen our lack of generosity and our abundance of jealousy. God knows our sin intimately. God knows our sin more deeply than anyone else in the entire world, any other person, including ourselves. God knows my sin. He knows your sin. But he still treats us with kindness. So how did God deal with our sin? How did God deal with the sin that he saw in people? Well, he took on a body. And then he took up a cross. And he hung on the cross. He bled and died. He experienced a death that he didn't deserve so that we could be restored to the Father. So that we could be uh, reconciled to him. So that we could have a relationship with him that lasts forever. So that we could be brought back to the Father who loves us. The kind Father who cares about his children. Who is accessible. Who is available to his kids. He died on a cross. He died in our place so that we could have a relationship forever with the one who says, I'm right here. You found me. And so as we wrestle with, how do I deal with the sin that I see in someone else? How do I deal with the brokenness that I see in the world? How do I just interact with people in general? Let that principle guide, guide your, your behavior, guide the way that you think and the way that you act. God has seen our sin the clearest, but he still treats us the kindest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for being a God who is kind. Thank you, Father, for, for loving us, 
being available to us even when we feel like that's not true. Um, thank you for being compassionate and kind and gracious towards us even when we don't deserve it. God, I know that I don't deserve your mercy. And no one in here does, but you continue to pour it out anyway. God, you have shown your mercy to us through, through your sacrifice on the cross. And so we praise you for that. We thank you for that. And I pray that the kindness that you have shown towards us would be what motivates us uh, to interact kindly with other people. I pray that the way that you love us would overflow out of us and, and change the way that we live our lives, Lord, and that we would be people who live in your kingdom and love people well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.